But, and so, but for today, for tonight, this evening, we have a Bible study, and we're going to be, our study is going to be in Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 21. And so Paul is going to be talking to us about Christian maturity and the Lord's desire for us to mature and to grow and to move forward in the Christian walk. And so Paul will be taking a look at that, giving us exhortations in those things. So I know that you will be blessed. So let's pray for our Bible study uh, this evening. And Father, we do come to you. And we just are so glad, Lord, that your word is for us today, as it was for the Philippian believers 2,000 years ago. And Lord, that I pray that maybe perhaps today has been a day where it's been long, and I pray, Father, that as people are gathered together and listening, that they would be able, and all of us, to put aside the things that might distract us from hearing from you. Because, Lord, we do want to hear from you. And we want to see what it is that you have to say to us this evening. And, Lord, that now that we have our Bibles open, I pray, Father, that we would have our hearts open to you as well. To hear from you, Lord, to be taught by your Spirit. And I pray, Father, Lord, that the things that we see and hear, Lord, will help us to be ones that are heavenly-minded. So we thank you, Lord. We give you praise. We give you honor, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And so as we look at Philippians chapter 3, we're going to be again looking at verses 15 through 21. And it reads like this. Therefore... The therefore that we see here in chapter, 15, or chapter 3, verse 15, that therefore, and we know that whenever you see a therefore, you what? You stop to see what it's there for. It's tied to a pre, something that's been previously said. And so in this passage, it's tied very closely to what Paul had to say in verses 12 through 14. So he comes to verse 15 and he says, therefore, let us... As many as are mature have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So let me just back up a little bit. Let me give you a little background that leads to what Paul is saying here in chapter 3, talking about maturity. We know, and most of you know, that 
the book of Philippians is a what they call one of the prison epistles. Paul is in chains in Rome, waiting to go before Caesar Nero. And he, um, he's, he's now in the fourth year of his imprisonment. Two years were in Caesarea. Another two years, he's been in Rome. Again, waiting to go before Nero. And what he's telling us is he's given us exhortation, and he wants to tell the Philippian believers this. He goes, I want you to understand as you begin the, the epistle, because it's epistle we hear a lot about joy. In spite of all the circumstances that he's in, he never lost his joy. And so you see that word joy or rejoice some 25 times in this epistle. But he wants to the brethren to know, he says, the things that have happened to me, I want you to understand as you look at chapter 1. And he goes on to say, um, the things that have happened to me have happened for the furtherance of the gospel, he would say. And the Greek reads that the things that dominate me, the things that dominate my life, have fallen out to me, have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And so these circumstances is what has brought me here. And he's one that says, you know, my life is all about his will. He's always been that way. And he says, so because I'm here in change, there's no reason for me to get upset. There's no reason for me to get mad because the gospel is going out in a very powerful way. You know, Paul always wanted to go to Rome. It was on his heart. He would write at the end of his third missionary trip, he would write to the Roman believers, and he would say, you know, I desire to come see you, and, and, and I want to come see you. He wrote it at the beginning of the letter and at the end of the letter. And at the end of his third missionary trip, he would, be, he would say, I'm going to Jerusalem, and then I must go to Rome. And it would be the Lord, as he would go to Jerusalem, and a riot would break out, and... Um, there, the Lord would come to him. We see that in Acts 23, as Paul is being held for that ride in Jerusalem. That he tells Paul, he says, as he stood by him at night, he said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, you must also bear witness of me in Rome. So Paul knew he was going to go to Rome. And he had that in his heart. He was excited about that. And I can imagine if it would have been me, I would have been thinking, great, Lord. Oh, you're going to allow me to go to Rome, and we're going to have crusades, and uh, we're going to have conferences, and I'll go on a speaking uh, tour to all the churches. But here, and this is a great lesson that we can get out of this epistle, that there are times where God allows things that happen to us in circumstances, they change. And Paul here, as he writes this epistle, he's, he's showing us and he's telling us that, you know, there are times where, where things change, things that are dominating my life. And it's the same for us. And we live in a day, don't we, that circumstances can change very quickly. And there might be somebody out there that's thinking, you know, John, um, circumstances have changed for me, Pastor John. I lost a good job, and now I work two jobs. You know, I, I've suffered sickness, and I've gone through loss. 
And things are going from bad to worse, and they don't look any better. I look to the future, and I think, how can this you know, future be any better? How can this all happen? And the lesson for us, as Paul shows us, it should encourage us and give us hope. Because when people lose hope, they, use, they lose hope, not always in the circumstances they're in, but they start to lose hope when they look to the future and they look ahead and they think it's not going to get any better. And Paul here, he says, I can't change what has already happened to me. We can't change the things that already happened to us, right? But Paul says that I can be very involved and I can be committed to the things that happens in me. And it's the same for us. We can't control sometimes the things that happen to us, but we can change the things that happen in us, inside of us. As we minister on behalf of Christ and and as we submit to the Lord. And Paul shows us that you can be very effective. You can be effective in the ministry of the Lord and the things that he has for you. And he tells these believers, he says, I want you to understand the circumstances that dominate my life. And it it may look like that I'm really restricted. I'm changed down. But on the contrary, the gospel is going out. And that when he says that, you know, these things are happening for the furtherance of the gospel, you know, you can take that, that um, there that he says there in, in chapter 1, verse 12. He says, these things are happening. That word furtherance means trailblazing. There's a trailblazing going on. And he goes on in in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, So that becomes evident to the whole palace guard and all the rest that my change are in Christ. He's ministering to the palace guards. And we know that he was chained. Many of us know that from the prison epistles that we've gone through. But you know what? A lot of historians think that it's just not plain old palace guards. This is the praetorium guards. I mean, these guys... They were the best of the best. And again, historians believe that maybe perhaps Paul was, was uh, chained to them. You know, during the time that Jesus was born, it would be Caesar Augustus that he would uh, start the Praetorium Guard. And they were a elite group of a couple hundred. You know, they were the best of the best of all the Roman legions. They were like the SEAL Team 6, you know, the Delta Special Forces, you know, like the IDF Special Ops. Nobody touched them, and you didn't get near them, and you didn't mess with them. They were like nobody else in the rest of the world, the Praetorium. And by the time you get on the scene here where Paul is chained to him, Caesar Nero, he has kept the Praetorian Guard, and, and he's had... Maybe, perhaps, again, historians, maybe a thousand of them. And they're changed to Paul, maybe in groups of, of uh, you know, uh, six-hour shifts. And again, these guys are treated special. They're wealthy. They're part of the government. And before all this, you know, if the Lord would have said, Paul, you're going to get to go to Rome, and you're going to get to minister to the Praetorium Guard. You know, again, if it would have been me, I would have said, oh, that's great. You know, we'll make Praetorium tracks and we'll have a short Praetorium video and all that stuff. But that's not the way God did it. Instead, he says, he takes Paul, he's into custody by God's will. And he, Paul says, I have these chains. They're not the chains of Rome. He never said he was a prisoner of Rome. But 
Rather, they're my chains are in Christ. And because of his chains, the gospel is being spread throughout the Praetorium, Praetorium Guard and without, in, within Caesar's household. Can you imagine being chained to Paul in a six-hour shift? You know, matter of fact, in, in this epistle, Philippians chapter 4, when he's signing off, he says, all the saints greet you, greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. He had a tremendous effect on this group. Now, he's able to work. He's able to write these prison epistles. But he's saying the circumstances in my chains have led me to the trailblazing of the gospel right here in the middle of political Rome. Right here where I'd never have been free, you know, been able to do that if I was free. free. So second thing, this should encourage us. You know, I know that we live in a day that we're all concerned about, you know, our rights, our freedoms. They're being eroded away and those kind of things. But Paul was doing this as a prisoner in chains. And I think of the trailblazing that we can do still in our freedom. We have an incredible amount of freedom compared to the rest of the world. We can get up. We can go where we want to go. Well, some of us go to work. We don't want to go there. But anyway, for the most part, we can go where we want to go. We can do the things that we want to do. Whenever we meet here on Sunday mornings, we don't have the police force outside these doors. And I can imagine, you know, the guards, you know, these, this elite group, this, you know, being with him for six hours, and they're saying to one another, there's something special about him, about this guy. He has such a great spirit. And we see things from him we've never seen before. And we're hearing things that we've never heard before. This guy, this little shrimp of a guy with a crooked nose, he's hard as nail. And word is spreading. And we can't control what is happening to us all the time, but we can control what's happening inside of us. So Paul, you know, again, just giving a little more background. He's, he starts giving them exhortations based on that thing. The gospel's going out. And in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that is an important verse because all the exhortations that he gives throughout the rest of the book is based on that one verse. Let your conduct, let your lives, let your walk be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he starts talking about unity to the Philippian beavers, being a one spirit and one mind. He starts talking about, you know, humility and, and be like-minded, fulfill my joy in doing that, having the same love of one accord. And, and, and he goes on, he says, let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but the interests of others. And then he shows that Jesus Christ is the perfect example of that through his humility. He goes on in chapter 2, he talks about being light bearers. And then he gets to chapter 3, and in this he starts talking about the legalist. And that, you know, the legalists that are doing fleshly work. And he says, if anybody was the best legalist that there ever was, it was me. And Paul gives his resume of that. And he says, but I gave that all up. I counted all loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And then he gets in and he gets to where we are. He begins again exhortation. And in these verses that we just read, he gives us two ways in which to walk or to live. There's a living out of a life in a godly way, and there's a living out of life in error. 
So as we begin to look at verses 15 to 21, he says there's a, a one direction, a godly walk, and there's another direction, walking in air. And he says there's one way that they're in is destruction, and the other group, he says, they're in is, end is that their citizenship is in heaven. So what Paul is very clearly doing here is that he's drawing the lines and, and you've heard me say a thousand times probably that we live in a world and we're in, in a culture that the world is in our face. It's closely attached to us, you know, with all the, the phones and the smartphones and the computers and stuff. And I never wanted to lead anybody on to think that I'm anti-technology. I'm not. We're able to give the gospel out further because of that here at Calvary Chapel. We're here tonight because of it. And so we benefited from that. I've benefited from that. But sometimes it brings the world, if we're not careful, a little too close to us. Matter of fact, it's right in front of our face a lot of times. And in that, it can invade our senses a little bit. And we can kind of lose a little bit of perspective and and. And, and a little bit of what really what is reality in all of it. And the reality of life is this. That life is temporary and it's passing away. And the end game is that with some people going into eternal destruction and some people going to heaven. That's the end game. And so that's what Paul is doing here in these verses. He's dividing people into these categories. And so he, Paul here, he's telling us what Christian maturity is and what it should be in our lives. And he says there in verse 15, Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Christianity, because some people don't want to move ahead they don't want to mature in their Christianity. Paul's saying Christianity isn't a spectator sports. And he's going to say here that we are ones that need to be moving forward. We don't want to be ones that have no skin in the game, that we're on the sidelines holding the clipboard, you know, hoping we don't get in the game. Well, maybe it's not clipboards anymore. Maybe it's iPads. But whatever the case... Or we don't want to be ones that, you know, we're just kind of, mon- you know, we don't want to move ahead. And, and so we're kind of Monday morning quarterbacking. And Lord, you know, I don't know, it, you know, you have that in my life. I mean, I don't want to call that play. And, and what you're doing, I wouldn't have thrown that past what you're doing in my life. And the Lord says that there's a lot of stake in the way that we live our lives. Your involvement, your maturing, you growing in the Lord affects the people that you're closest to, your kids, your grandkids, your nieces and nephews, your spouses, those around you. So he says, therefore, let us, as many who are mature, have this in mind. And here, if you look at the word mature, as we're reading here, it's the same word that he uses in verse 12, where he says, not, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold for that which Christ Jesus also laid hold on me. And so he's saying here when he's talking about maturity or whenever you see that word perfect in the New Testament, a lot of times it just means mature. 
And so here the word, you know, mature, it, it, it's, the, you know, you might have a version, that, therefore, as many that are perfect, he says there. You might have a version that says that. So again, the word perfect is a form of the word mature that we read. There's a level of maturity, Christian maturity, that we should come to. And he says that Christian maturity should look like this. That you develop an attitude in a life that you move forward. And it's very much connected to verses 13 14. Remember I said that therefore it was connected to those verses. In verses 13 and 14 that reads, Brethren, I don't, he says, I don't count myself to have apprehended. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says, you know, you know, bear down on the goal for the sake of the prize. What's the goal? The goal for us as Christians is to be like Christ. That's what sanctification is. You bear down on the prize, which is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's going to happen with that upward call comes when it comes? Well, again, you're going to be like Christ. The goal is the prize. The prize is the goal. And so he says here, you know, um, you're going to be like Christ. And the goal of my life is to be like Christ. And that's also the reward of my, my race. My goal is to be like Christ. I move that way. I won't perfectly, none of us will perfectly get to be there, to be like Christ, until we go home to be with the Lord. Or we get raptured. You know, it's, it's, it's John, he said in 1 John 3, he says that someday we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. But that's the direction. We want to press on. And what motivates us, it should motivate us to do, is the upward call. And we live in light of the future, of the Lord coming back, to be part of another kingdom. We live in light of being called out of this world into the presence of God, where at that point we will be given glory. We will be given eternal rewards. And we're going to be made like Christ. And it's a wonderful future for us as Christians. And if God is so gracious to be willing to give us that prize, how committed should we be to run our race? Here we are. We were lost. Sinners. And we were on our way to hell. And God in his sovereign grace picks us out, chooses us for salvation in order that he might eternally make us like his own son. It's an incredible truth. Incredible grace, amazing grace. That's the prize. To pursue in that prize means you're making that maximum, maximum effort. Being motivated by the greatness of the prize. I'm forgetting those things which are behind. And I never want to make light of those things that maybe has happened to you in your past. And they've been very difficult and very hard. I never want to do that. He says, but I'm forgetting the things which are behind. We don't forget. We can remember those things. But he says, I'm moving forward to those things which are ahead. And as Christians, I know we don't forget those things. But what he's saying is we don't get stuck in them. We don't live in them. And as we become more mature, 
we hold more loosely to the present world and we take a more sincere grasp of the world to come. Now, we don't neglect the things of the world. We are called, of course, to be good employees and, and good citizens and good parents and good stewards of what has been given to us. We don't live kind of in a zoned-out place in our lives, you know, case Sarah, Sarah type of life. But Paul says that if you're a mature Christian, which doesn't mean that you outwork all the other Christians, that you out-evangelize them, that you out-try to have more talent. It says if you're a mature Christian, it means you're otherworldly. You're aware of heaven. You're living in light of the living God, and you filter everything in your life through the living God. And why we are in this world, I know it isn't all, always easy, because we do have this world that is so much in our face at times. But we have God's Word, and we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. And we have a Savior that is risen and alive. And Paul says, look, for those who want to be mature, be mature-minded of this very thing, forgetting things that are behind, pressing on, reaching forward, being mindful of those things that are ahead. That should mark our lives. And Paul goes on to say, if in anything there in verse 15 you think otherwise, God will, will reveal this to you. Again, our goal, we live as Christians. We're ambassadors. We represent another kingdom. Our citizenship is somewhere else, and that determines how we act, what we say, what we watch. We represent another kingdom. Now, he doesn't say that immaturity is the unpardonable sin. All of us, when we came to the Lord, we were immature Christians, right? Immaturity is the pathway to maturity. So we get saved. You know, you're a young Christian. We should desire the milk of the word. But as we mature, we should want the meat of the word to grow. And he says the sign of someone being mature in their Christianity is what world, what kingdom, what is it that they're holding on to most? In pursuing the prize, and as we do that, we have divine resources to do that to, for a more mature walk. And, and by the way, that, that phrase, uh, have this mind in verse 15, that, you might have even a version that says, have this attitude. Have this attitude. Literally means think this way. Be intent on this. Set one minds on this. On what? On pursuing the prize. Again, attaching this phrase to those previous verses. If in anything you think otherwise. And you might have a version that says, and if anything you have a different attitude. And you think that it's possible that there are some Christians out there that one, don't want to grow? Yes, there is. There are those who are very content with what they are. They kind of like the taste of the world. They don't want to, uh, you know, set their minds on heavenly things so much. Maybe they're stuck in the past. And it doesn't always have to be something that's really bad. It can be something, you know, they can kind of look. I've talked to guys that look at the past. They think it's kind of the glory days, you know. They, they kind of, you know, oh, boy, you know, I used to have some fun. Like they envy that thing a little bit. I don't know. It could be a lot of things. They're content where they are. 
And again, I know in the past that you may have been hurt. But the Lord desires to move you forward. Some can't move. Paul says, look, if this stuff, you know, if you have a different attitude, you don't see the importance of pursuing in it this way. If you believe that even if you have arrived, you think you were arrived and, and you're just going to be settled there, you know, I'm saved. Maybe you think you can live any way that you want. If you think any other way than what I've said about pursuing the prize, and you won't listen to me, look, this is what he says at the end of verse 15, then God will reveal this to you. He simply says, I'll leave it to God. And if you're ever going to receive that, you know, if you're not going to receive that message, if you won't get it from me, you'll have to get it from God. And there have been times where I, in my Christian walk, I've had that attitude. Time maybe where I, God has told me to forgive somebody, and I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And it took the Lord to move me along. And there are times where we have a different attitude, and only God can move us. And he says there, nevertheless, in verse 16, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. In other words, you keep moving along, Keep moving along that path that has brought you to where you are now spiritually. That's the idea. Let us walk. If you're one that has been moving forward, and it means, you know, he says, keep living, keep following in line, spiritually stay in line, and keep moving forward, we're doing those things that has brought you to maturity where you are now. If you're one that has been moving forward, keep doing the same things, basically, is what he's been saying. Keep desiring to do your devotions and to spend time with the Lord in prayer, to serve people, to be in fellowship. Keep doing those things that has been, has brought you to where you are now, that you're growing and you're doing those things. And then he says in verse 17, follow examples in there. He says, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. He says here, and Paul's not blowing his own horn. It's the Holy Spirit that's pinning, having Paul pin this to the page, saying that Paul is a good example. Paul says, you know, note those. Means bring into focus those and how they walk, that are a pattern like we are. Bring it into view. Paul didn't think that he was the only one that was the only example to the Philippians. Intently watch for those who are living. And Paul is describing, you know, as he's describing Christian maturity, he says, you have us as an example. And I think all of us have examples, don't we? I know a lot of us older guys in the Calvary Chapel movement, we had Pastor Chuck Smith as an example. He was an f- incredible example. As he see, we saw him loving people and teaching the sheep and working and doing ministry. He taught us ministry. He says, find people who are mature in the Lord because he knew what the stakes were. That will challenge us, who will challenge us to live and to walk and conduct and be, live our lives and conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
And he says there in verses 18 and 19, For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And so he says that, you know, even now in tears, I'm warning you, that there are those that are the enemies of the cross of Christ. And remember, Paul is writing in the context of legalism here in this chapter. You know, he said, he didn't have nice things to say about the legalists, the Judaizers. You know, there in verse 2 of this chapter, he says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, you know. And then he goes on and he describes, I was the, I was the worst legalist of all. And he Again, he goes on and gives his resume and all that. But here he's saying, you know, he's talking there about legalists. And, and, and the, he says, you know, they like to boast. He says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Notice that that word there is used a lot, isn't it? They're all into themselves, you know, they, their other versions. And Paul is saying this because he knows that a lot of times the most dangerous person that comes around and leads people astray isn't always the person who denies Christ or denies the cross. It's the person who comes as a wolf in sheep's clothing. And he says, well, yeah. They might tell you yes to Jesus and yes to the cross, but, and then they start throwing in all the buts. But, you know, when it comes to salvation, you need more. You need circumcision. You need baptism. You need to join our church. Our church, that's the only way that you can get into heaven. The buts and the buts and the buts that keep going on. That's the person, he says, is the enemy of the cross. They're veil menders. Veil menders. And you might say, Pastor John, what's a veil mender? Well, we know that when Jesus died on the cross... It says that the veil, that veil that scholars believe that was maybe 60 feet tall, several feet thick, that veil that separated there in the temple in Jerusalem, the holy place from the most holy place or the holy of holies. The holy of holies where the presence of God was. And when he would give up his spirit there on the cross, a supernatural event would happen. That God would rip that veil from top to bottom. It laid open the Holy of Holies. And what it would say is God was saying, you have access, access to the presence of God. You can go in the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest one time a year. But now that veil's ripped and he says you have access to the presence of God at any time. No need for anyone between you and God. That's all been removed by the blood of Jesus Christ. It opened the way. It was a sign, a supernatural event to show that it opened a way for anybody to come to God. And But legalists, you know what they want to do? They're veil menders. They want to sew up that veil back up so you need them, that you have to go through them, that you're direct, you know, you're, they want to tell you that, you know, and give you all this false wisdom about how to be saved. And if you want to talk to God, it's a direct call now. 
It really is. And as Christians, we can go into the throne room, the presence of God at any time. And we can call upon Him. If we're ones who are sinned, we can go to His presence and ask for forgiveness. And we can pour out our hearts. And we can tell Him our, about our brokenness. And we can say, Lord, I have had a bad you know, couple months. My past has been hard, but I need help moving forward. Pouring out our hearts. And He's there. And he always is there. And he has four things he says about these legalists, these veil menders that I call. You know, he says their way is, their end is destruction. The first time that that word destruction is used in the New Testament, Jesus used it in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, you know, um, where he said, Enter by the narrow gate, and wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go by it. He would call Judas the son of perdition. That word perdition is destruction. So these guys, their end is internal damnation, internal destruction. And Paul weeps because of that, because he doesn't want anybody to end up in hell. He doesn't wish that on anybody. That's not a desire of his heart at all. And he says, secondly, whose God is their belly. Their God is their eternal appetite. They worship their fleshly accomplishments and their fleshly religious works that they do. I wonder if Paul at this time, maybe perhaps he was thinking of the Judaizer and their demand for Christians to still have to follow the dietary laws. It says, thirdly, they glory in their shame. means that they boast of the very works which they should be ashamed of. Those works that Isaiah says that are like filthy rags. Those works that Paul said that he did, and it was all manure, as he said in this chapter in verse 8. He said, fourthly, they set their minds on earthly things. If speaking of the Judaizer, it could refer to the fact that they're into the ceremonies and the festivals and the feasts and the sacrifices and the new moons all those prescriptions that they went through. Today's enemies of the cross come along, churches and Christians, and say, we're the friends of the church. We're the friends of the cross. We're the friends of Christ. We want to lead you. We want to show you the real way. And what they are doing is, is they try to add, add works to grace. Add, you know, the work of the flesh to the work of the cross. So he says here in verse 20, he goes on to say that, and he, he, notice that he changes the context now. He's changing the thought. He says, now, on the other hand, for our citizenship is in heaven, for which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our conversation, that's what that 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 word citizenship means. Our conversation, our politics, our citizenship is, and note that word is, it's a very forceful word in the Greek. And it should be translated exist and stands existent presently. Our citizenship exists right now in heaven. And this is very significant to these Philippians whom he is writing to. They would understand what Paul was saying about this. Because Philippi was a Roman colony. 
And if you were born in Philippi, your name went into the register. Not in Philippi. Your name went into the register back in Rome. All your records were kept in Rome itself. Your birth records, your name was recorded there. The way that you dressed represented Rome. The language that you spoke all signaled that you were from Rome. You represented Rome. And the protection and the rights that you had, they came from Rome. So these Philippians believers would really understand what it was that Paul was talking about here. And when Paul says that we're citizens of heaven, what's he saying? He's saying that your name is written in heaven. All the records are there in heaven. Yeah, your sin is blotted uh, blotted out by the blood of Jesus and all of his righteousness is put into your column. It's put into your column in heaven. That's where the records are kept. Knowing that, that we have heaven's protection, just like the Philippians had the protection of Rome. We have the protection of heaven. And we're the ones that speak the language of heaven, don't we? In our clothes... We wear new clothes now. The old clothes are gone. And we wear the clothes of the new man. And we represent the kingdom of God. And we look to and eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that word wait, it means look, you know, it means constantly looking, expectantly for the return of Jesus Christ. That's how we live. It's like you're eagerly waiting. It's like somebody on their tiptoes, you know, you know looking over a wall, maybe a, a, somebody, you know, trying to see over what's over, a, you know, the fence or the wall or whatever. You've seen kids at a parade. They're standing on their tiptoes trying to see. They're eagerly waiting to see what's going on. And so he says, you know, we continue to look for heaven for the return of our Savior. And as we wrap it up this evening, he says in verse 21, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. He's going to change us. Give us a new body. And that word that he says there in verse 21, he says transform. It means He's going to give us a new schematic. That's what it means in the Greek. Now, you techies, you know what schematic means, you engineers. You put something together. You have a drawing of a machine or a schematic of it. That's what Paul's saying here. He says the Lord is going to change you, transform you. He's going to use a different schematic when it comes to your body. He's going to change or transform our lowly bodies. Now, this year, turning 60s, I can really appreciate this verse more and more. You know, when I was younger, my, my body cooperated with me a whole lot. But now that I'm 60 years old, you know, my mind sometimes thinks that I'm 28. You know, and, you know, I, I, I get out of bed in the mornings and have to drag this old 60-year-old body out of bed. And my wife tells me, you sound like that Rice Krispie breakfast. You know, all that snap and crackle and pop that's going on. 1 Corinthians 15 says, this corruptible body must put on incorruptible. This mortal body must put on immortality. And we all have our temporary tents. 
Imagine what that's going to be like as we get our new bodies. There's going to be a new schematic that's going to determine how this new body that we get operates. The schematic that we have now, subject to sin and sickness and wearing out and heartache, it gets beat up. But in heaven, we're going to have a perfect soul and a perfect inner part and a perfect form and a perfect outer part. And the combination that will perfectly manifest the glory of God. And he's going to do it all by the exertion of the power that has even to subdue all things to himself. And we could speak about that one statement for hours. But he's going to use the same power that he has to subject the whole universe to himself to change our bodies. And if he can subject the entire universe under his control, then he can certainly give us glorious bodies when we go to heaven. This is our future. And perhaps maybe you're one out there that is saying, you know what, Um, I hadn't had much hope. The Lord says to you, through these things that we looked at this evening, he says, I want to move you forward. And I still have a purpose and a plan for you. And I still have a way for you to be effective. And if I could use this this short, scrawny, crooked-nosed man called Paul in a powerful way, I can use you in the same way as well. And you may not be able to change your circumstances, but you can't have control of what I'm going to do, and you you can allow me to do a work, because I want to do a work in you, that you will be effective in a kingdom that you now belong to as you are a Christian. And that is the hope that we have in these days. To pour into those that we are close to, to pour into those who we love. We can spend a lot of energy on being mad because of the way things are. But the Lord desires to do a work just like he did with Paul, who was chained up. And that's what he wants to do. And so we have a glorious hope. The hope that is in Jesus Christ for all of us who love the Lord. Amen, amen. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you do desire to do a work in us and that you do desire, Lord, to use us in a powerful way. And, Lord, some of us have circumstances that are very tough. Some of us have circumstances that we think it will never get better, but we know, Lord, that the power of the Holy Spirit is inside of us and that you can use us in a, in a very powerful way. It may not be a flashy way according to the world. It may not be the most shiny way according to the world. But, Lord, you have something for each and every one of us. That we belong to another kingdom. We belong and we are citizens of another kingdom that will last forever. So I pray for each and every one of us, Lord, that you would give us wisdom in that. That you would give us direction. That you would say, this is the way I want you to walk Walk ye in it, turn to the left, turn to the right. And I pray, Father, Lord, that you would strengthen us and be strong in our behalf. Lord, give us, give us that clear picture. And I know that through your word, your word is like a light to our path. As we step forward, Lord, that we would sense your presence in our lives. That we would want a desire to keep doing those things that keep moving us forward 
that we wouldn't be satisfied with where we're at because we know you have much work to do in us. So do that work in us, Lord. Again, we pray for Pastor Jeff and Barbara. We pray that in their ministry, Lord, down in Peru, that they would be successful, Lord, that there would be fruit, much fruit in that, that you would bring them home safely to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us, and have a good rest of the week.